Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. Claire, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Well, do uh, please keep your Bibles uh, open in front of you as we come to that Bible passage in just a moment. The other thing that I think you'll find helpful to do is to uh, dig out the the sermon outline, the talk outline that I've uh, had printed for us. And I think you'll find that useful, whether you want to take notes or not, just to see where we're going. And there are a couple of quotes on there as well that I'll be referring to in just a moment. Well, with uh, with Bible and and handouts um, in place, let me now pray for us. Heavenly Father, we've just sung, let love be found among us. We've sung of your deep love for us. We will see and think of more of that as we take communion later and remember the remarkable death of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that that love shown to us would then be sort of expressed among us, that people may be able to say they truly are God's people by the way We love one another. So please um, help us to know what that will look like. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it's fair to say that in many ways, it is uh, harder to be a Christian now uh, in Britain in 2017 than it was, say, 40, 50, 60 years ago. I don't think that's being melodramatic or exaggerating. Uh, And not least of all, because this nation has largely given up on its Christian heritage and the foundations on which so much of the values of British society was built. At the end of this month, we'll mark the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. I've mentioned that for the last uh, few weeks, so you'll be uh, really clear about that in your own mind. Now, that act was the beginning of a move of God that not only changed the church, but changed Europe itself. So uh, the late Mike Ovey described the Reformation as, uh, the quote is on the handout, a seismic movement, not just in this land's history, but Western Europe as a whole. That is quite a statement, that the Reformation changed Europe. It changed England, not just the Church of England. You don't have to be a great theologian or you need a great historian to know that the gospel has changed and influenced England and not just the church in England. Consider that the Clapham sect, as they were called, a group of Church of England social reformers, which included people like William Wilberforce, John Newton, Henry Venn, Charles Simeon, names that some of you will be familiar with. 
These were men inspired and driven by the gospel so that they acted in government and in society to bring about great social reform in England, most famously the, uh, the abolition of the slave trade, but they did so much more. Indeed, they have been credited with playing a significant part in shaping Victorian morality. Uh, the point is this, Britain became great because it was built on the foundations of a Christian worldview shaped by Christians who had been firstly uh, changed by the Reformation and then passed that on to others who continued to be changed. But in the last 20, 30, 40 years, much of what was accepted as true and right has now been questioned and even abandoned, uh, both from an intellectual belief in God, which used to be accepted in this country, that there, basically we believe there is one God. Uh, that has been abandoned. Right down then to the way that we live. Uh, the most ex- obvious example of uh, how, it, how that sort of departing from Christian values has affected our lifestyle is our attitude to sex and sexuality. Uh, Dale Kuhn, in this book, uh, Sex and the Eye World, describes how our attitude to sex has changed in the last years. Um, and he writes uh, these words, uh, they're on the, um, on the handout. This shift in public opinion on sexual morality is without precedent in the history of the West. It is not new that men and women practice a wide range of sexual behaviour, but what is new in the past 40 years, is the significant erosion of the accepted belief that the moral boundaries of a sexual relationship should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. Now look, this is not a talk about sexual ethics. It's not going to be that at all. I simply use that as a clear example of the shift from us being a a nation that largely held to Christian morality and ethics, but which now questions, and in many areas, has abandoned a Christian worldview. And that is true in almost every sphere of life, education, medicine, law, politics, in all areas that were previously built on Christian foundations because we have departed from those. uh, It is changing the way that we think and live in every area of life. All that to say that it is now harder to be a committed Christian than it was in the middle of the 20th century. Because today, as I stand up for Christian truths and values, my views will be considered at best old-fashioned, but usually extreme and dangerous. So Christians can be expected today to be rejected and marginalized and even vilified by society. Now that is exactly how it was for the recipients of Peter's first letter. Uh, This letter was written to people who suffered what we might call low-level persecution just because they were Christian. I call it low-level persecution because as you read through this first letter uh, that Peter wrote, there is uh, no suggestion that people were being imprisoned because they were Christian or indeed being murdered because they were Christian. It was more the sort of thing that we might encounter day by day, being marginalised, ostracised, considered just a bit odd, because we're Christian, told to keep quiet or to keep it to ourselves when we tell others about Jesus. That's the sort of thing that's going on today. That was the sort of thing that was going on then. And so the whole of this letter is about helping Christians to, as Peter says it, stand fast in the true grace of God. Uh, he, He tells us why he wrote the letter right at the end of the letter. Now look at chapter five and verse 12. He says, with the help of Silas, who I'm regarded as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, and then he tells us why he wrote this, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. 
stand fast in it. The whole letter then is about the true grace of God and how we keep going in the Christian life. And so this morning, that is what we'll be thinking about. How we in the current climate can keep going as Christians, or as Peter puts it, stand fast in the true grace of God. Now in our section this morning, this little section that we had read by Claire just now, we see two things to help us live as Christians in a hostile world. Of course, there's many other things right through the letter. But two things this morning. The first one uh, on the handout, pray. Verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Oh, it's the sort of thing that you might see if you go to any large city centre in England with a street preacher holding up a board with the words, the end is nigh. That is uh, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Of course, the next word on the street preacher's board is repent because he's holding that up to say to unbelievers, Jesus is coming, you better get ready for it, so repent. But Peter's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to Christians, Christians who are suffering for being Christian. So he writes, the end is nigh, pray. That's how verse seven works. You see, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. The end is nigh, Jesus is going to return. Oh, and that is not a threat. That is a delight for the Christian. And especially for the Christian who is suffering in this world for being a Christian. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, if you've gone through a hard time just because you're a Christian this week, and I can think of um, some teenagers in our church family who have been physically abused at school this week because they stand up for Jesus. If that is you, it won't be long before um, uh, you can think all the suffering and heartache and struggles of life will be over. Jesus is coming. It won't be long before King, King Jesus comes back to wrap up history as we know it and to take you to be with him forever. Isn't that brilliant news? It won't be long before a Christian worldview is the only worldview and is embraced by all who live in this world in the new creation. Can you imagine that? won't be long. And so Peter says, pray and ask God to keep you going until that day. And to pray, you need to be, verse 7, clear-minded and self-controlled. Um, for Dad's Army fans, Peter's saying, don't panic, Mr. Mannering. In these tough and challenging times, be clear-minded, verse 7. Don't panic, think gospel thoughts. Yeah, it is hard living as a Christian in this world. I don't know about you, I find this, uh, sometimes not consciously, but every day, whether I'm conscious of it or not, I am bombarded with thoughts and attitudes that conflict with following Jesus. Watching the news, listening to the radio, in conversation with my friends, my Christian beliefs are being challenged and eroded. Not always because people are being aggressive towards me, just because I'm hearing different things. And that will wear me down by constantly having to defend what I believe as a Christian. Not always defending it verbally, but I'm defending it in my mind. Why do I believe this? And so when the pressure's on, when you're tempted to run around like a headless chicken, Peter says, get a grip, take a few deep breaths, be self-controlled so that you can pray. That is such a helpful approach to life, isn't it? When we're under pressure, and especially when we're suffering just because we're Christian, we should pray. It's pretty obvious, really. But I wonder if we do it. When I can't cope, I should turn to my Heavenly Father who loves me and who is bigger than all of this. Ask him to give me the strength to keep going. That is the first thing in this passage 
that will keep me going in the Christian life. So one, pray. Secondly, love. Uh, We're at the bottom of page one uh, on the handout. In fact, it's more than love. It's love deeply. Do you see verse eight? Above all, love each other deeply. Of course, there's all sorts of things I could do when I'm under pressure as a Christian. I could batten down the hatches. I could pull up the drawbridge. I could keep myself to myself. Look after number one. You know, this is really hard. I'm just going to keep myself to myself. But Peter says quite the opposite. No, he says, look out for one another. In fact, he says more than that, doesn't he? He says, love one another deeply. Don't selfishly turn in on yourself, but love the Christians around you because that's what we need when life is hard. Literally, this is love one another at full stretch. Try as hard as you can to love those around you. Go as far as you can, as hard as you can, to love the Christians around you. Indeed, verse 8, do that above all else. Sometimes uh, people say to me, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Now, sometimes unbelievers say that to me, but I'm not even thinking of them at the moment. Sometimes real Christians say that to me. They say, I have my relationship with God. I don't need to go to church. Now, it might be that very expression, going to church, might well betray why they think like that. Because church is not somewhere we go. Church is who we are. Church is a family gathering. Now, flip back with me to chapter 1 and verse 22. And you'll see Peter has already made this point when he talks about loving So the reason we're going back to 122 is because in 4.8 he says love each other deeply. But look what he's already written. Chapter 1 verse 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply. There's the same expression you see that we see in chapter 4 verse 8. Love one another deeply. But you see what he says before that. uh, Since you have uh, sincere love for your brothers. That's why we're to love one another deeply deeply because we are brothers and sisters I have one biological brother his name is David he's older than me four years older than me I like to encourage him by telling him that often Um, if David fell on hard times I'd do anything for him he lives uh, some miles away uh, several hours drive away but if he was in trouble I'd drop everything and go and see him if he and his family, he's married and they have a daughter, if he and his family needed anything, I would do what I could to get it for them. If they lost their jobs and were homeless, they could move in with us. It wouldn't be convenient, it wouldn't be easy, it would be a squeeze, but we would do it for as long as they needed. Now, as I say that, you're not sitting there thinking, Paul is such a great bloke. You're just thinking, yeah, of course, that's what families do. Not that spectacular, is it? It's just what I'm expected to do. I love him, so I'll help him. He'd do the same for me. It's what you do as family. Well, look, we are family. We have the same Heavenly Father, so we are brothers and sisters. Of course, if you've not been around Christian things for long, that kind of language can sound a bit odd or pious, but it is, in fact, brilliant language that we should use all the time because it reminds me how I should love you. I should love you at full stretch. Treating you as family. If you go through hard times, I'll do what I can to help you. At least I should. You see, Christians don't go to church. We are church. So it's odd thinking of being a Christian on your own. And especially living in the culture we live in as it rejects us. We need one another. 
And of course, that works both ways. So right now, you may be coping with life and feeling quite strong. That is precisely the time when you need to be involved with God's people to help them. For all those who aren't feeling so strong at the moment. And this is why we place such an emphasis on small groups here. We're a large enough gathering, a large enough church family for individuals to get lost and overlooked. We want everyone to be part of a loving, supportive group of Christians uh, so that they can be supported and support others. Uh, That, incidentally, is why we talk about small groups and not Bible study groups. Our small groups are not just the Christian equivalent of a book club where we just happen to read only one book and study and reflect on one book all the time. Our small groups are much more than that. Of course, they are not less than Bible study groups. We read God's word together to hear from God, to learn how he would have us live, to be transformed by his Holy Spirit, to be the people we should be. Small groups are not less than the Bible, but they must be so much more because it is hard to live as a Christian in a hostile world. So, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. And then Peter goes on to write one of the ways we can do that. See it there in verse 9. Uh, Sorry, we're back to chapter four again now. Chapter four, verse nine. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's one of the ways we can demonstrate our love for one another. Hospitality is one of those words that I think if we don't put it in a Bible context, if we don't understand it from a Bible perspective, we're gonna kind of miss the point. Hospitality is more than having people round for a meal. Again, it's not less than that, but it is more than that. Um, As I was growing up, my parents would often say to my brother and I, we're entertaining tonight. Now, if you've never come across that expression before, you might think that halfway through the evening, my dad would get up and do his stand-up routine, and my mum would then sing to our guests and do a bit of a dance. That's entertainment. Now, let me assure you, that wasn't what they meant by entertaining, and I'm quite pleased to say it wasn't what they did either. No, when they talked about entertaining, they meant inviting friends around for a delicious three or four course meal. And before our guests arrived, we'd have to whiz around the house and make sure everything was spick and span. Not that the house was very untidy, but everything needed to be put away. We boys, my brother and I, had to be on our best behavior. And the table would be laid with the best tablecloth and adorned with the best cutlery. Mum would cook a fantastic meal uh, and uh, it would be served on the finest china crockery. And I have to say, mum and dad were brilliant hosts. They were very generous with their time and with their home. And to be fair, they made everyone feel very much at home. But I want to say that's not hospitality. It's not really what's meant here. I mean, it is, but it's, it's more than that. You see, hospitality might include having people around for a meal, but it's not entertaining. It's about making people feel at home and part of the family and enabling them to relax. It's about hanging out with people, doing everyday things of life with people. Sometimes, indeed, the best hospitality is when the house is not tidy because then people feel they can really relax with you. You know when you go into a home and you don't feel you've got to kind of sit up straight. Sometimes the best hospitality is spontaneous. Somebody knocks on the door, you invite them in to join you, whatever you're doing. If you're preparing a meal, you get them to chop some carrots with you and you lay an extra place at the table so they can eat with you. And then, of course, you get them to do the washing up with you afterwards. That makes them really feel part of the family. 
I love uh, the old Far Side cartoons. I uh, don't see them around so much, but uh, here's one and one of my favourites. Uh, if you can't see it, it's a picture of uh, four people. Uh, a, a couple are just walking out of the door. They're uh, the couple who lived at home who are sort of um, sprayed out, looking as if they're dead over the so- sofa. And it says underneath, the Arnolds feigned death until the Wagners, sensing awkwardness, are compelled to leave. You know that thing when people just won't go, when you've invited them round. This cartoon actually leads me to tell you my favourite definition of hospitality. Hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were. (laughs) Yeah, it takes a while, but you'll catch up in a moment. Now, seriously, put hospitality in the context of the book 1 Peter, and we see just how powerful it really is. Here are Christians suffering for being Christian. So imagine some of them losing their job because they stood up for Christ at work, and with the job goes the money. They can't pay the mortgage, so suddenly they are homeless, and that is really tough. But if the wider church family show you real love, stretching love, real hospitality and have you move in with them for as long as you need, that not only helps you get on in life, it helps you keep going as a Christian, and indeed would make you more prepared to stand up for Christ in the first place if you knew that whatever happens, someone's going to look after you. See, how do we keep going as Christians? Well, we pray, we ask our Heavenly Father to help us, and we love each other deeply from the heart, practically, hospitality. Having given us uh, the one example of hospitality, Peter then writes, verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Now, that, that, that last two words, various forms, grace, God's grace in its various forms, could be translated multicolored forms. And the only other time that word, that multicolored word, is used in this letter is in chapter 1, verse 6. So just one more cross-reference. Flip back with me to chapter 1, verse 6. And right at the beginning of the letter, Peter writes, in this you greatly rejoice. He's just talked about the glorious thought that Jesus has risen from the dead and we're one day going to be with him for all eternity with him. He says, "In in this, in that, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer Grief in all kinds of trials. There's our word, our multicolored word, in multicolored trials, various trials. Trials come in lots of different ways. So imagine a Christian family in first century Asia, Asia Minor sitting down to eat their tea at the end of the day, and dad says, I've had a really bad day. My boss called me into the office and has warned me that if I mention that I'm a Christian to anyone else at work again and try to get them to come to Christianity Explored, I'm going to lose my job. And then mum says, my day hasn't been much better. The other mums at the school gate are ignoring me. You see, I invited them to that event where we talked about suffering and they didn't like what they heard at church and now they won't talk to me and haven't done since. And then 12-year-old Johnny pipes up, I hate school. At break, my friends call me names. They laugh at me and call me Bible basher and Jesus freak. I feel so alone, I hate school. Multicolored trials coming to that dear family. Trials coming in different shapes and sizes. Low-level persecution, but very hard to cope with. That's chapter 1, verse 6, multicolored trials. And then as you flip back to chapter 4, verse 10, we see those multicolored trials are met by multicolored grace. 
God's grace given to us in the gifts he's given to the church. Chapter four, verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. You see, it's brilliant. God's people are under pressure. And then as God's people use their gifts, we are encouraged to keep going in the Christian life. And there are two categories of gifts in these verses, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts, verse 11. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Now, you know, loads of sort of different lists in the Bible of gifts. Well, I say loads, there's a few. Uh, one of the gifts that are mentioned in the Bible, speaking gifts, is the gift of encouragement. And there are people here that have that in spades. It's brilliant. Uh, so uh, whenever I meet people, I can think of three or four people like this. They say things that encourage me, often saying things about the things they've learned about the Lord, how good the Lord is. And uh, as I walk away from a conversation like that, it spurs me on to keep following the Lord Jesus. So whatever, if I've had a really hard time, I meet one of these people, they encourage me to keep going. A speaking gift. It's fantastic. Now, others have the speaking gift of Bible teaching. So you imagine you've had a bad day or a rubbish week, everything's gone belly up, and you turn up at your small group and someone leads the Bible study and it's exactly what you need to hear and you're encouraged to keep going and you're spurred on in the true grace of God even though you've had a really tough week. That's verse 11. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. So if you have speaking gifts from God, use them. And be sure, verse 11, that you do speak the very words of God, not just your own thoughts. And then secondly, there are serving gifts. Now, second half of verse 11. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Hospitality is a serving gift. We've already considered that. We've already seen that if you give that kind of open home readiness to just give your life to people, how that encourages you in the Christian life. But there are other serving gifts lifted in the Bible. Here's one from Romans 12, contributing to the needs of others. So you see a need and you meet it. Taking meals around to people when they're ill or downhearted or struggling to cope with life. That is, is, it seems like a small thing. It's such an encouragement. If you've been on the receiving end of that, it's brilliant, isn't it? You're struggling through life. Somebody drops a meal around. You didn't know quite how you were going to get to cook the meal that evening, and here it arrives. And boy, you go, I'm going to be able to keep going. People do that here. It's brilliant. Uh, giving generously is another serving gift that is lifted in Romans 12. So years ago... Uh, a man in London uh, said to me, I don't think I'll ever be able to teach the Bible, but the Lord has given me the ability to earn huge amounts of money. He wasn't boasting, it was just a fact. He said, so I'd like to give you some money so that you can employ a colleague to help you work, uh, do the work that you're doing. Now, we may not be that wealthy, but giving generously, giving what we can, helps others to keep going. Some time back, I was asked by a member of the church that I was involved in to drop some money around to someone who was struggling financially. I can't remember all the details. I think this uh, man had lost his job or, or been made redundant or something, and he was struggling financially. And this other church family member knew it, and he said, I want to give this money, but I want to give it um, anonymously. So I had the great delight of having an, an envelope uh, with some money in it, and I took it around to this man. I said, look, um, somebody wants to give you this money anonymously from the church family. And sometime later, the man who received the money said to me, 
That financial gift kept me going in the Christian life. It gave me real assurance that the Lord was with me and that he wouldn't let me go. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that lovely? Well, there are just a couple of serving gifts. There are others. Uh, you all have different ones. But you see, as we use them, it encourages people to keep going in the Christian life. And so, verse 11, we're to use them with the strength God provides because it isn't easy using these gifts, but God will give us the strength to use them. See, it's a wonderful thing. See how all this works? Because of his grace, Jesus has given gifts to the church uh, and uh, that you can see that really in verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. So they're given by Jesus. And as we use those gifts of grace, Christians are helped to keep going as Christians. Now as I close, see how different this is to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church 500 years ago. The reason I mention that is because this series has been prompted by us nearing the anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation where we're thinking about grace and grace alone, and we're thinking about why and how that changed the church at the time. So in Luther's time, and and, uh, still today, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church uh, says that you need to go to the priest to to receive grace. The priest is something of a dispenser of grace. Uh, um, It's as if grace is a thing, and the priest can kind of give it to you. And you get grace through, this is the Roman Catholic uh, uh, belief, through the seven means of grace. Baptism, confirmation, confession, communion, last rites, marriage and priesthood. You get grace by then doing, largely doing religious things. And that makes the institutional church and indeed the priesthood very powerful. It means you have to keep returning to the priest to have access to God and to his grace. But Luther and the Reformers quite rightly railed against that. In this excellent book, Why the Reformation Still Matters, by uh, Michael Reeves and Tim Chester, which I've mentioned uh, several weeks running, uh, they write this. uh, It's on the handout. Luther argues that every Christian is a priest, or rather that there is only one priest, Jesus Christ, but all those who are in Christ are priests with access to God. Now you see how this works. Jesus is the the one who gives grace. He is the great high priest. We can go directly to God through Jesus and through all that he's done on the cross. If there is any sense in which people are priests, it is that we are all, all real Christians are priests. So Peter writes this very language, chapter two, verse nine. You regular Christians are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That is exactly what we're seeing in chapter 4, verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, and 11. Jesus has given gifts to his church. Chapter 4, verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received from Jesus. We're to use the gifts of grace that Jesus has given to us. And as we use our gifts, we are all encouraged to keep going in the Christian life. See the point? We don't need the institutional church, but we do need to be church. We need to be family to keep each other going. That's what keeps us going in the Christian life. It is getting harder and harder to live for Christ in the 21st century. That's why we need each other. We need to pray and we need to love each other. And we need to love each other at full stretch by using the gifts God has given us. And as we do that, 
we'll find God's grace equipping us to keep us going in the Christian life until that day when Jesus returns and we are finally with him forever. Let's pray together. The end of all things is near. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you very much that um, through the struggles of life, we know that there is going to come a time when the Lord Jesus will return and gather up his people and then uh, begin the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with you and him forever. We, we long for that day in the struggles of this life. And in the meantime, we pray that we would do these two things that we've thought of this morning. We pray... Uh, pray, asking you to keep us going, and that we as a church family would be loving, loving deeply, loving at full stretch, loving one another, so that we can indeed keep going right to the end. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for your praise and glory, amen. Well, we are going to sing again. Before we do, let me mention, the um, right at the bottom of the handout, there's a question. How can I use the gifts God has given me to encourage other Christians? That would be a great thing to talk about um, after we kind of formally end here as you uh, go off. And a good thing to talk about over the uh, lunch table, uh, just so that we cement this and get this into our minds. And that's going to be one of the things that you will talk about in your small groups uh, when you come to study this passage in a few weeks' time.